0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, good evening. Either it's the Easter holidays or people knew it was me preaching. Uh, It's good to be with you all and uh, just to have fellowship with you again after we gap over Easter um, and uh, just to resume our studies in 2 Corinthians. And uh, so we're going to pray and then uh, we'll launch into 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and we're going to read from verse 3 to verse 13. So let's pray first. Heavenly Father, uh, we acknowledge that this is the day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad in it and rejoice that we can open your word with such freedom here. And, uh, and rejoice, Lord, that you send your spirit to give us understanding. And we thank you that uh, whether it's the, the, the man who's preaching or whether we're listening, uh, we thank you that we all need your word and in your mercy and kindness to, our fathers, to us, Father, you, you, you give us that which will sustain us. You give us bread for our souls. You give us what we need for the week's walk with you. So we pray that you would feed and nourish us, and whether, Lord, it's, it's just something that's fairly routine, like a, a meal that's going to benefit us for a day or so, or whether it's something that's really going to change the way that we live, we lay ourselves before you, glad to receive from you, glad of your great love, in Jesus' name, amen. Just on that last hymn, a "Safe Stronghold," in um, Festerberg ist unser Gott. Martin Luther had a very uh, entertaining correspondence with his wife, Katie, um, uh, Catherine. And uh, now that doesn't mean that they didn't live together; they did most of the time. But he would go off preaching. And he would write home comments about the beer in different places and that kind of thing. And uh, he had a, a really kind of wicked sense of humor, did Martin Luther. And um, so he, he, there was one thing C- C- Katie had written to him, and he was worrying away, and she was worrying away. And he wrote back as saying, I'm so sorry to hear that God is dead. And the the correspondence is in a, is, is in a bound volume called Letters to My Katie, which um Uh, William, uh, up at uh, Christian Focus uh, Publications, um, has had the sense to republish. So if you want a really good read, uh, and if you want some robust correspondence between a godly man and his even more godly wife, she really had to be godly to put up with him, um, then I I warmly commend it. So, for instance, that last verse, you just wonder if he actually ran that past his wife before he published it. Um, and though they take our life, goods honor children wife, yet is their profit small, these things shall vanish all. And you sort of think, hang on a minute, Martin, you're actually going to say, what? <laughs> I'm a thing? How dare you? Anyway, so I just cast that out for your edification and I'm um, sure that's going to help you when you're really tempted in the week to come. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 3. And uh, we will trust that the Lord speaks to us in his mercy and grace. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors; known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. Well, as we've been going through uh, 2 Corinthians, we've been bearing in mind that Paul here writes in a way that that is not typical of the rest of his letters, Um, because he's not in the kind of situation. he's not writing to address a need that um, he is really prompted in the rest of his letters. Um, because in Corinth, um, there have been those who have come into the church, and they've um, kind of hoodwinked some of the people already there, uh, into believing that Paul's gospel um, is not really what you need in order to be right with God. that you need extra. You need the kind of thing that Paul preached, but you also need um, and most likely it's the Judaistic thing, so it's, you need some of the, uh, you need to, to observe Jewish regulations. And if you behave uh, like a good Jew, then you will be within the community which God blesses, and so you then will receive grace from God. So you, you sort of buy grace which doesn't really work, does it? Because you have to buy it, it's not grace. And one of the ways in which people have been turned away from Paul's gospel is by the discrediting of Paul and his companions themselves. So it's got personal. And if, if these people can show that Paul isn't really, he's, he's not a really great orator, He's not reassuring the expenses as expensive as we put it early on in this series, um, like Stella artois who was once um, advertised as being reassuringly expensive. Um, he doesn't seem to have all the credentials of a, of, a, of a great public speaker. So why would you believe him? He's, he's weak. He says he's going to be there, and then he isn't there, and all that kind of stuff. He seems to chop and change. And so a great sort of personal discrediting program has gone on in Corinth. And many of those uh, with whom Paul and his companions spent about 18 months preaching the gospel, many of those who have become Christians directly under Paul's ministry, have turned against him and his gospel. And so Paul writes in defense of himself and his companions and what they did when they were there in Corinth and what they've been doing since, so that they will know that the gospel itself is genuine and will stick to the gospel and will not believe what Paul writes when he's writing the Galatians, will not believe a false gospel, which is really no gospel at all. I mean, it's it's not good news, is it, to be told that you've got to really, really try hard and do a whole lot of regulations before God might love you. That's not news, that's instruction. It's not good because you'll never do it. So uh, Paul has been writing uh, in this vein um, very much about himself, and he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. And what he has been in the epistle thus far, is exactly what he's been in his ministry. is all of a piece. Um, you know the, the same thing you'll find anywhere throughout Paul. So wherever you break you know when you break a stick of rock, it's going to say, "Blackpool wherever you break it," or. <laughs> You bought it in Blackpool. Um, uh, it's the same with Paul. Wherever you cut him, you're going to see the same sort of stuff inside. He's just got complete integrity. So the way he writes is, is characteristic of his whole ministry. And the phrase for it is, is in our passage this evening, and uh, we find it in verses 11 and 12 or 11 and 13, open Open-hearted. Open-hearted. So in this section, uh, six three to thirteen, uh, Paul is in one sense rounding off what he's been saying about himself and his ministry, and what he's going to do now is address, or following it, is, is address some of the issues that have been reported back to him uh, that are going on in Corinth. So um, we we get from six fourteen, we get more sort of teaching about how they're supposed to be living. Uh, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for instance. Um, he never really gets away from this sort of thing about, look, you know, don't believe what they're saying about me and the gospel thing. Um, and, and the whole epistle is one long sustained defense of his ministry. But there's just a little sort of, it's almost as if six, three to 13 concludes what he's been saying. It just sums the whole thing up. From the previous five chapters as, as we have them nowadays. Paul, of course, was not writing in chapters. The Bible wasn't written in chapters. They were added much later. And uh, what you've got as, as sort of uh, section headings uh, were added by the editors of the NIV. Uh, they weren't put there by Paul. So, 6 3 to 13, what is he saying? What is he saying to sum up his whole ministry? Um, what is he saying here? To to sort of reinforce and just cement in their minds that they should not turn away to some kind of false gospel and follow people who look flash and expensive and have have got the equivalent of kind of spiritual bling. Well, the first thing, of course, is that he has never got in the way, he has been a servant. And so, uh, just three and four, look at those with me. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. See, there were people in Corinth who have been commending themselves because they were great orators, they were flash, they were expensive, they looked the part. Uh, in much the same way that we want people now to... to, to we, we produce Christian celebrities, And uh, so Paul is saying, well, you know, I'm not like that, because I'm a servant. I'm a servant of God. I'm not a celebrity for you, to reassure yourselves with. I'm a servant of God. And whereas a celebrity focuses all your attention on themselves, as a servant of God I have not been an obstacle, a stumbling block, an obstacle. I've not got in the way. What is he? He, he is a see through minister of the gospel. He is a see through servant. So you see through him to God. So here we are. Boys and girls, put your hand up if you're a servant of God. Okay? Now, what Paul is writing about is not something that is reserved especially for those who are apostles. It's debatable as to whether anyone can be called an apostle now in the biblical sense. Some people think he can be, some people think you can't be. Some people call themselves apostles up in Aberdeen. We've got a string of Nigerian churches, and some of our brothers from Nigerian sisters are fond of titles. And so we've got one dear brother who stays at the road of us, who's now an apostle. And uh, his wife, conveniently, is a bishop. We must assume that a bishop is somewhere lower down the, the kind of pecking order than an apostle, although I, I have my sneaking suspicions that practically speaking, it may be different. Um, we, 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 in our reformed Presbyterian circles, we don 't use that kind of language because we 're sound. Um, but everybody is a minister. Because everybody who's a Christian serves the true and living God. Servant is simply what every Christian is. So when Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica, for instance, and is reminding them of, of uh, or, or really praising God for how much uh, progress they've made, uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 1 9. Um, about the the reputation that the Thessalonians have throughout Macedonia and and Achaia and even further afield. Um, He says, they tell of how you turned to God from idols to do what? To serve the living and true God. So when you became a Christian, you turned from serving false gods. There are gazillions of those around. And if we can't find one, we'll make one. You know, Calvin's phrase about the heart being a forge, endlessly producing idols. So we make idols out of all sorts of stuff. Some are presented to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and even churches. Some we just manufacture for ourselves. Things that we serve, the things that call the shots in our lives, whether we love them or we're afraid of them, they end up calling the shots. You can have as an idol or something that you're afraid of. If there's something that you're afraid of and it's controlling you, it is being an idol in your life. And Paul says, when you became Christians, you turned. You had a metanoia. You had a repentance. You turned from serving those idols to serving the true and living God. So as a Christian... You're a servant. That's how Paul has always regarded himself. He hasn't, because he's been an apostle, because he's been going around planting churches with all these other companions, because God has spoken to him in amazing ways, because he's had astonishing experiences of God, he doesn't see himself as being above anybody in the sense of being a superior Christian or a Christian who is there to be served by everybody around them, lording it over them. See, he's got in his ministry, he has embodied what Jesus taught about not lording it over one another, but serving one another. And what Jesus exemplified when he washed the disciples' feet. So, he hasn't put himself in the way. He hasn't spent his time attracting attention and fame and a reputation and becoming a big-shot speaker. He hasn't become a celebrity. So he's become increasingly a see-through Christian. And that is what commends him. It's a real challenge to us in our Western church these days. What commends people to a congregation? What commends people to the Christian public? Very frequently what it is, is having a fantastic website. Having some kind of ministry that you've named after yourself. Mm. Um, Being all over... Facebook, Twitter, all over the Christian media, all over everything. And sometimes that happens because people are just outstandingly able. But even then, something in your heart just says, oh, please be careful. Please don't turn into a celebrity. Because the church will turn you into one. What what do we regard as authentic and commendable ministry? It will not look gorgeous. It won't look spectacular. It won't have whatever the equivalent is of... Christian glamour. We won't have what John Piper once described as gold teeth and highfalutin hairdos. What is Paul's commendable ministry? What is it that shows that he is a servant of God rather than a Christian who wants others to serve him? As if he were a God well we get from verse 4 through to verse 10 the things which commend the real servant of God now there are different ways of of grouping these things that Paul um, lists here the things that actually make him commendable the things that demonstrate the genuineness of his ministry Um, One way of doing it is is as follows. What we've got in verses 4 and 5 is what we might call arduous travail. Arduous travail. Great endurance. Well, you you only endure what's difficult, don't you? You you don't endure steak, egg, and chips, unless you're a vegetarian. Um, (laughs) Sorry. Um, You don't endure a holiday. Well, you might some holidays, but you know what I mean. You don't endure a walk in the park. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Arduous travel. All the things that our present culture tells you you're really not supposed to do. And if you're really responsible, and if you really look after yourself, and if you're really are on the latest sort of fitness thing or health thing or well-being thing, you will avoid at all costs. Arduous travel. And then, um, first half of verse 6, what we might call virtue under fire. Virtue under fire. Purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. Now, bear in mind that purity, understanding, patience, and kindness have been shown simultaneously with troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and all the rest of it. So on the one hand, you've got this persecution, this arduous travail, so you're under fire, but what you've demonstrated is virtue. And it's very interesting that, that um, one of the things that the devil will use to get us to indulge ourselves in sin is a difficult time. So you're having a hard time of it, and you're, really, you know, you're, fa- you're paying a price here, and so the devil comes along and says, go on, you just deserve a good old sin. <laughs> uh, give yourself a break. But purity, understanding, instead of taking everything the wrong way, patience, just keeping going, and kindness. How difficult it is when life is tough for us and we're on the receiving end of other people's hostility to remain kind. Now, I'm, I, I'm quite sure that for for most Christians in d. Beatings, imprisonments, and riots are not normal. Um, unless it's the Papers, state persecution of the church in Dundee is at an all-time low at the moment. But we have our equivalents, don't we? And yet Paul has not only endured this hostility, which celebrities don't do, but he has demonstrated virtue under fire. And he hasn't done anything as a celebration of his own strength and power and ability, though Paul had many strengths and many abilities. And so 6b, the second half of verse 6 and verse 7, his ministry has been entirely God-powered in the Holy Spirit. And in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. So he hasn't sort of written about these things in 4, 5, and the first half of 6 to say, see what a good boy I am. Because he knows that the power comes from God. The effectiveness comes from God. All that he's needed For arduous travail and virtue under fire has come from God. And what's commendable about Paul is that he has endured these contrary experiences. Verses 8 and 9. Glory and dishonor, bad report, good report. Genuine, regarded as impostors. Known, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, and yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. So these contradictory experiences, these paradoxes. So I used to think that by the time you got into your mid-fifties, if you're a Christian, if you're any kind of credible bloke, by the time you got into mid-fifties, you got life sorted. It all come together. You got your act together. Everything was in place. Life would just run on a nice, even keel. And then I hit my mid-50s, believe it or not, and or at least they hit me. And, uh, and you, you discover it's just not like that. That's a myth that's been held out to you. Well, I I hope it is, (laughs) if it's just me. But I haven't actually encountered anybody yet the same sort of age as me, for whom life is just a beautiful, even keel, and there are no problems or anything like that. Life is paradoxical. Life is contradictory. If you think that if, by being a good Christian, you're going to have a life only full of glory, good report being regarded as genuine, known, and all that, then wake up. You follow Jesus. You don't follow a mythical, successful, Western ideal. And how truly he sees the paradoxes of being a servant. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Not sorrowful, but sometimes rejoicing, as if they were two separate compartments in life, and you spend a few, few weeks or months in the sorrowful room, and then you emerge from that and go to the joyful room. We're both at the same time. So even in times of great sorrow, that Paul experienced with respect to the church in Corinth, for instance, there was yet much to rejoice in. This paradox of being poor by the world's standards, yet making many people rich by God's standards. This paradox of having nothing in the world's terms yet possessing everything in God's terms. That's the cost of being a servant. And it's that cost which is his commendation. See, the celebrity Christians who attracted attention to themselves knew nothing of that cost and therefore had nothing in Christian terms to commend themselves really. Because a Christian follows Jesus. The son of man who had nowhere to lay his head. Despised and rejected. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Came to his own and his own received him not. And shouted crucify him. And they did. So let's just land this plane for a moment or two. You see, Paul is not the product of 19th and 20th century British middle class evangelicalism. By which I mean, Paul is not one of those stiff upper lip Christians um, who just regards the most difficult things that are the merest scratch. Paul did not wake up every morning, starch his lip and iron it, and keep it stiff for the rest of the day. He felt sorrowful. He felt what it meant to be regarded as an imposter. And he wrote about it. And this attitude that sort of lingers on to some extent from what is purely 19th and 20th century British middle classness in our evangelicalism that you know you 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 deny any real problems deny any real hardships you never talk about them is a load of nonsense it requires monumental denial but of course it also says somehow that I've got to be strong all the time and if I'm strong all the time Christ will be glorified by my stiff upper lip. Christ will be glorified because I'm always on top of things. Christ will be glorified because I'm always okay. Which is rubbish, isn't it? Because Christ is glorified when you are flattened on the floor, but don't give up. Christ is glorified when you are rejected like he was, but endure. Christ is glorified when you Face death so that his life might be seen. So, Paul is not the product of 19th and 20th century British middle class evangelicalism, which goes back to something like the Raj. He's not the product of something that produced the empire. But Paul is also not the product of 20th, 21st century Western comfy Christian consumerism. Which is probably, for most of us nowadays in the church, the biggest thing that we face. A 21st century Western comfy Christian consumerism. Whereby we regard God as a shop. And he's got to have stocked on his shelves that which we want. And if we don't like it, we're perfectly entitled to complain to the shopkeeper. What's in it for me? What do I want out of it? And that consumerism is a real killer of vital, genuine, enduring, lifelong Christian discipleship. Jesus did not say, Follow me and have an absolutely great life. Jesus did not say, Follow me and have an Instagram existence where the sun glows softly through the filtered light whilst you camp out somewhere neat. And grow a beard, particularly if you're male. Jesus did not promise success in all the ways that the world promises it. Jesus said, come and die. If anyone will be my disciple, he must take up his cross, deny himself daily, Follow me. That's not consumerism. That's not comfortable for 21st century Western ears. But that was the commendation that was written above Paul's ministry that he was prepared to follow Jesus. And Paul isn't the product of a prosperity gospel either, which says that if you're living a good Christian life, everything will go well for you. And if things are not going well for you, it's because you're not living a good enough Christian life, or at least not putting enough into the minister's holiday fund. Glad to see that you've all put enough into David's holiday fund, by the way. Um, but that's another matter. Um, that prosperity gospel, which we happily despise whenever we see it anywhere, and which we Um, are, are quick to say is biblically utterly wrong and yet which seeps into our expectations perniciously and silently and grows there so that we expect that if you're living a faithful Christian life you will start to do better materially I've heard that preached in Reformed Presbyterian circles. You know, it is a simple fact that as the center of gravity of the world church has shifted to the global south, the experience of the average Christian is that by following Jesus, you get poorer in this world's terms. You see, servants of God aren't normal. Whether it was the 19th and 20th century British middle class culture, whether it's a 21st century consumerist culture, whether it's a prosperity culture, we aren't the product of our culture, or we shouldn't be. That is, we are not going, you are not going to be normal if you're going to follow Jesus. So Paul has already said, In 5.13, we are out of our minds. Now, he's not saying that we really are. He's saying that's what it looks like to the world. We become fools for Christ. Servants of God are not culturally normal. which is, of course, why Paul was such an effective evangelist. You can't show spiritually dead people what life is like by playing dead, by being like them. You will never show anybody the vital, forceful, energizing, sustaining power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ by being as like them as you possibly can be. It is the difference that makes a difference. It is the difference that shows that you follow Jesus and not a cultural norm. And one of the things that has come out of that ministry of Paul's that he describes in in 3 through 10 is this giving spirit, this completely open-hearted giving spirit. The heart, of course, as we've said before, is the seat of the will in in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, Um, That is, it's what makes you do what you want to do. It's your volition. It's not the seat of the emotions as it is nowadays in um, our culture. And being open-hearted, therefore, means that we have consciously, as an act of our wills, gone out towards you. We have opened our lives to you. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you. What does that mean? It means that if you're going to be a servant of God, you're going to be vulnerable. You're just going to be vulnerable. It means you're going to be hurt. It means that you will be Misunderstood, misrepresented. Means that people will use what they know about you or misuse it. Amongst all the other things, you will be vulnerable if you're going to be open hearted. Many of us find that very difficult. We want to play safe. We've been hurt before. We don't want to be hurt again. Thank you very much. Once bitten, twice shy. But just as Jesus kept on giving himself, so did Paul. We are not withholding our affection from you. We've just given you our love We're incredibly fond of you. We love you to bits. We think the world of you. We've gone out of our way for you. We have not withheld our affection. And of course, being a minister of the gospel gives Paul the right to say in verse 13, the expectation... As a fair exchange, I speak to my children. Open wide your hearts also. It means to say that ministry is personal. It's one of our brilliant Western tricks, and a, a particularly British trick that we have, uh, to be able to... Um, Hit somebody really hard, punch them in the stomach or knee them somewhere, and then say, Sorry, nothing personal. And it's a way we have of justifying ourselves and of saying, you know, protecting ourselves from any charge of being rotten. It's nothing personal. Don't take it personally. Don't, Don't take it personally. But in actual fact, Paul counts it his right to take things personally. So, for, for, for your minister, who um, suitably this evening, so that he's not embarrassed, although the, the, the notion of actually embarrassing David is an interesting one, um, it's probably good that he's not here. You see, if, 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 you, if you start knocking the, the minister and then say, It's nothing personal, it's just your ministry, <laughs> well, it's like his life. Or if you reject the preaching and say it's nothing personal, Paul would say something like cobblers. Of course it's personal. It's his ministry. It's his preaching. Who else was there? Who else was God using that morning? It's him. You can't slag it off and then say nothing personal. See, Paul, having given himself, expects... A reciprocal giving, a reciprocal affection, a reciprocal sacrificial life. It is the mutuality of our life together in Christ that Paul is is talking about in verse 13. He's not saying, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, and I expect nothing back. You don't find that in the Bible. That sounds commendable, but only if you've grown up in Britain, (laughs) basically. I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm expecting nothing back. That's not what 11, 12, and 13 say. Because that's not what God says. Who gave us his very son. And counts not reciprocating by giving ourselves to him as an offense. As an offense against his love. It's meant to be mutual. Love is meant to be met with love, giving is meant to be met with giving. Kindness is meant to be get met with kindness. You're not doing it to buy. It's just part of mutually being in Christ together. So let me say, David hasn't asked me to say this, nor I don't think will he pay me any more to say this or anything, but you know. What are you giving to the guy? Uh, Ministers knock their pan out more than most congregations would ever know. And when you're a minister in a place, you're giving yourself, and you're also giving your family. Because your family moved to Dundee. Your family are known. Most of you are in paid employment somewhere. That's not the case for you, is it? They they might not even know that you have a family. See, when you're in this kind of ministry, you have given your whole life to the congregation. And that's not to the institution. It's not to some sort of platonic ideal called a congregation. It's to you guys. It's to you guys. So if your minister has opened his heart to you and has not withheld his affection, don't withhold your affection from him open wide your hearts also so in closing um, one sort of final comment it goes back to um, what Paul claims as um, commendable about his ministry Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Uh, and it anticipates something that, that we're going to read later on in, uh, the end of, uh, towards the end of chapter 12. The paradox of Christian ministry, the paradox of being together as servants of God, is that your strength is not your strength. Your strength is not your strength. Your weakness is your strength. That's why the well-starched upper lip has nothing whatsoever to do with the Christian life. It's probably completely against it in some way. No, no I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm strong. I'm okay. Your weakness is your strength. Because it's only when you know how weak you are that you rely totally upon God. It's only when you realize that you are at the end of yourself that you'll turn to Him. So, St. Peter's Free Church. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, who have welcomed me amongst your number and uh, have patiently uh, listened to my ramblings and witterings from the front, what do you think your strength is? Well, it's not your strength. It might be good. It might be beneficial. It might be a gift from God. But if it's a gift, it's a gift. It's not yours. You received it. Your strength is God. Your strength is His power. Your strength is His Spirit amongst you. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 24... About when he'd given them the task, the disciples' task, you know, that the, the, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. And then he says, effectively, don't try this yourself. He says, wait in the city in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Why did Jesus say, wait? because otherwise they would have recognized the task and thought, yeah, we can do that, we'll get on with it. They would have attempted it. (laughs) And Jesus said, don't try. it. Don't try this at home. Don't try and do this yourself. Wait until you are clothed with power from on high. Any congregation's true strength, any minister's true strength, any servant's true strength, and we're all servants, is not their strength. It's their weakness. Because God is your strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the amazing honesty and openness of your servant Paul. And we pray that you would help us to learn, and we ask, Lord, for your spirit strength for the coming week. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would remind us that it is of your mercies that we are not consumed. We Pray you would help us to live in your grace, and so live by your strength, and in your strength alone. In Jesus' name, and for the sake of his glory, not ours, amen. In closing, we're going to sing a song, Lord.